Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Every so often here at Inquiring Minds, we like to take an even deeper dive than usual, covering a topic over the span of several weeks. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed many ways in which we work and learn, but there's another revolution on the horizon. And I think it's time for us to really gain a deeper understanding of how artificial intelligence is changing not only how we work and how we interact, but also what we know about what it means to be human. So over the course of the next four episodes, we're going to look at artificial intelligence from many different angles. We're going to start with the people behind the discovery of artificial intelligence or the building of artificial intelligence, talking about the game-changing insights that have accelerated the speed at which artificial intelligence is being incorporated in our lives in the last decade. But this innovation has itself been decades in the making. Then we're going to talk about how our brains construct the world, what it is about our brains that we learned and that allowed us to then create artificial intelligence that is so much more effective today than it was many years ago. In part three, we're going to ask how artificial intelligence and smart machines are changing how we work and therefore what we should be doing to educate the workforce of the future. And finally, we're going to jump 100 years into the future into at least one author's fictional account of what life might be like when the age of machines is truly upon us. So join us for this four-part series. To begin with, we're going to talk to Cade Metz. He's the technology correspondent for The New York Times, and he's covered artificial intelligence over the past eight years. And like every great journalist, he's not just interested in covering technology, but rather covering the stories of the people who make the technology. And his latest book is called Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. I thought in our conversation about artificial intelligence, it made the most sense to start with the humans behind it. Cade Metz, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Glad to be here. So uh, about a week ago, as I was reading your book, I was also editing an intro to psychology textbook. And, and one of the 
the sentences that I had to edit was was one along the lines of, you know, even though computers are very good at things, they're very bad at some things that we take for granted in the human brain, like you know, language and facial recognition. And I had to edit that out because now computers are very good, in fact, at those two things that five years ago they really weren't. Um, And so I feel like your book is so timely because it walks us through now that a lot of us can actually experience the benefits of some of the technological innovations that you talk about, we can see them. So another example is, you know, now that a lot of us do Zoom calls, Zoom has this closed captioning uh, capacity, which is remarkably good, (laughs) amazingly enough, if anyone has had that experience. So that's an example of, you know, sort of natural language processing, or, or you can tell me the details of that. So I wanted to just start with asking you how you decided to start this book with really the the star figure Jeff Hinton, um, who is is known to be ha- have really sort of pioneered this shift into into this new way of doing it, but what made you think that that was the place to begin? There are there are a couple reasons, but one of them gets exactly at what you're saying, right? That um, there are these various ways that we see the technology improving almost before our eyes, right? It's surprising sometimes where you think something doesn't work, and then it, it suddenly it's working in front of you. And all the things you mentioned uh, are powered essentially by a single idea. Uh, it's a single mathematical idea called a neural network, and it dates back to the 50s. And Jeff Hinton, who you mentioned, who is my the central character in my book, he embraced this idea Uh, In 1971, when he was a graduate student at the University of Edinburgh, at a point when the idea was at its lowest point, um, almost no one, even in the field of AI, believed in this idea. And what you see is over the decades, this idea kind of rise and fall in the estimation of AI researchers and technologists and and others swirling around uh, the field. Um, But he keeps working on it. And then there's this real inflection point in 2012 when he really gets it working together with two of his graduate students for image recognition. And that's a moment when not only does the technology work uh, in really pointed ways, but the tech industry wakes up to this and they realize the importance of what has happened and they jump on it. Um, And what's so fascinating and this is why I began the book at that particular moment, is that Jeff also realized how to take advantage of that in a way, and it sort of goes against his personality, and you you learn as the book goes on who this person is. But he literally auctions his services off and the services of his two students to the highest bidder. And so you get this situation where in real time, um, these giant companies are jumping on the idea. It was the only way to begin the book. And and in some ways, you know, that is a pivotal moment. And now when we look back, you know, he got $44 million for this little shell company that he created essentially to sell this technology. And that seems like actually that's not such a big number. We hear about, you know, all these tech companies that, you know, have valuations at a billion dollars right from the gate. And yet if I, you know, when I think about 
20 years ago when I was a grad student in psychology. And I remember like hearing about neural networks and it was this like tiny fringe idea amongst cognitive psychologists or, you know, in computer science. And it was like, it, yeah, it was like if, if you were the, the person who did this kind of work, like you were sitting at the back of the room during, you know, during the journal club or whatever. Like it was like, oh, yeah, we tolerate that person. Like they're working on something that's never going to work. I don't know. It's just so and, you know, the it just the the kind of the people that I remember, at least, who were in that field were the people who really did not care about fame or money. You know what I mean? Like they were not doing the sexy thing. They were doing the thing that they believed in, but like they also knew nobody would ever recognize it. You had described it perfectly, right? So that was the situation. And and Jeff was one of those people, right? Um, he's working this field that was on the fringes um, and that very few people believed in. And then it starts to work. So what that means is when that idea starts to work and all those companies need and want this idea, there are few people on earth who know how to, how to make that work, right? And Jeff is one of them. And in one sense, you're right, $44 million uh, to those who follow Silicon Valley may not seem like a lot of money, but that's $44 million for three people two of whom who are still in graduate school and have never worked in industry, one of whom is a you know, 65-year-old professor um, who's never worked in industry. And what you see is that that set the price for the talent, right? Um, really, they're paying $44 million for their services. And what you see in the wake of that is similar numbers being thrown at individuals because there were so few individuals on earth uh, who specialized in that one idea. And by the way, almost none of them were in the U.S. And, and so the U, U.S. giant U.S. companies um, and others across the world had to go to Canada for the most part um, and Europe uh, to find these few people. Um, I, you know, I love the way you describe it. There's sort of the people in the back row. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, so I should also contextualize this because I was a an undergrad at the University of Toronto in the late 90s, just as Jeff was coming back. Uh, we didn't, I don't, he was never, I don't know if we actually directly overlapped. I, I haven't looked at the timeline because I know he sort of went away, but I don't remember him. I mean, uh, you know, teaching any of the courses that I was taking. But I do remember then in the early 2000s as a grad student at UCLA, where there was this completely other view of the things that I had learned as an undergrad at U of T, which was that there's this new idea, you know, neural networks and connections, and that's the future. And then you get to UCLA and they're like, yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> and, you know, you, so it was really personal for me to read about how both how both of those views came to be, because... In Canada, as you say, this idea was something that was that 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 was celebrated, and it made me wonder if it took a place like Canada, which often can't compete at the highest level um, with some of the ideas that the U.S. has already mastered, but it can come into its own uh, um, with someone like by by harboring somebody like Jeff Hinton, uh, who has this other idea, but that needs consistent research for like 40 years before the big payout. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about that, sort of the culture of academics in Canada versus the U.S. or the U.K. versus the U.S., and how that played into the fact that the 
in, in the U.S., this idea of of neural networks um, did not gain traction in the same way, or at least it didn't. It doesn't doesn't seem to have created the opportunities for people like Jeff who really continued to work on it for many decades. It didn't. And and you're right. I think that Canada is a place that was welcoming uh, to people like Jeff. But I will say that I really think this is about the choices of individuals. Uh, let's just take Jeff because he is the central figure. He was in the United States, right? He was at Carnegie Mellon and he was working this idea and had just had a big result. A neural network um, in the early 80s, it was missing a mathematical piece. It didn't work as well um, because it needed this extra mathematical piece. And Jeff published a paper along with two other researchers that gave it that piece. And it essentially worked then as it works today. In that moment, he decides to leave the country. Uh, What he realizes and what his wife realizes is that he cannot do AI research in the U.S., without taking money from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department. And they do not want to do that. It's the height of the Iran-Contra affair. And they they have such conviction about this that they leave the country and they go to Toronto, right? So the whole situation that follows over the next three decades can be traced back to this one very personal decision. And this is the other thing you alluded to, and I love it that you were there, right? You talk about showing up at the University of Toronto, and you don't remember if Jeff was there or not. You're right. There was this brief period, about three years, where he left the University of Toronto, and he went back to the UK, where he's from. And while he was there, the reason he went there was to found this program at University College London called the Gatsby Unit that brought these ideas, this these machine learning ideas, the idea of a neural network, which in in a loose sense is modeled after a human brain, after the human brain or the network of neurons in our brain. This program that he founded, um, you know, sort of blended that um, with with neuroscience, and that particular program at University College London gave rise to Demis Hassabis, who would become another key figure in this AI arms race, let's call it, right? So really, it's about these two decisions that Jeff made um, that decided where the talent was when this idea started to work. So we've kind of set the personalities uh, now for people and sort of, we haven't even talked about some of the interesting things about these personalities, like the fact that Jeff Hinton does not sit down, (laughs) which I think is really interesting. I mean, imagine how challenging it is to travel if you cannot sit down or you won't. but also, you know, there's this other side of it, which is this this kind of controversy or this debate between neural networks and other forms of um, developing an AI. So, so for people who are not familiar with why neural networks were considered a dead end, can we just unpack that? Absolutely. And as usual with this story, the best way to describe these things is to go back to a particular person and show what they did and what they believed. The neural network idea, it dates back to the 40s and the 50s. And in the late 50s, a man named Frank Rosenblatt, who was a professor at Cornell University uh, in the States, in New York, and he worked at a lab in Buffalo, New York, he actually built uh, a neural network uh, with the technology of the day. Uh, And the best way to think about a neural network, let's just define our terms. 
it's it's a piece of mathematics. Uh, and this piece of mathematics can learn skills by analyzing data. So the example I give in almost every story I write for the Times is if you feed thousands of cat photos into a neural network, it analyzes those photos and learns to recognize the patterns that define what a cat looks like. So it literally learns to recognize a cat. And that's you know fundamentally the way it worked in 1950 when Frank Rosenblatt uh, built what he called the perceptron. Um, it has this great sort of, you know, vaguely, you know, science fiction-y name, right? Um, but it was simpler. It could it could recognize printed letters. So a, imagine a big card piece of cardboard, white cardboard with a big printed letter A on it or a big printed letter B. He could show this to the neural network um, multiple times and it could learn to recognize those patterns. But you know, if it was a handwritten A, it wouldn't work. Uh, it was flawed. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'd love to, to tell Pio about and think about is that Frank Rosenblatt gave this interview with my own paper, the New York Times, in 1958. And he all he had done is make this work with printed letters. But he said in the future it would recognize objects in, in photos and it would uh, recognize spoken words and it would talk itself and it would you know, build itself on an assembly line and then it would fly into space and um, do who knows what in outer space. But the New York Times just printed this. And what you see over the decades with this technology and so many other AI technologies or any any other technology is you get this hype that that's built up around it because its creators believe in it. Uh, and they make these grandiose claims. And then a few years go by and people realize it doesn't really work like they said it would work. And part of it was that the neural network didn't have this missing piece. It could, it could you know, pinpoint when it comes to image recognition, a particular spot and decide if that spot needed to be colored in or not. But it couldn't deal, um, you know, like I said, with handwritten letters um, and kind of the uncertainty there. And so it took this paper that Jeff Hinton published in the 80s um, to help make it work. But really, the reason it finally worked is because we had enough data and we had enough processing power, computer processing power needed to analyze all that data. So really, we needed the Internet to give us all the data, the pictures and the, uh, the text and the sounds we would need. But then we needed more computing power to sift through all that. Yeah, like the analogy that that I've heard used is like if you're trying to understand how a baby recognizes faces, you need to understand that that baby has both seen a lot of faces or face-like things, might have some predisposition towards being interested in faces, um, but also gets reinforced for correctly recognizing especially a familiar face. And so if you think about a machine that we have to build, it's not enough to just give it 50 trials. You have to give it 50,000 trials if you want it to be able to sort of mimic that same kind of experiential learning. And so that's my understanding of, of why it took until 2012 for this fundamental idea, which seems like the logical way to go about it. If you want to create something that thinks like a human, take the human brain as a starting point and figure out how to reverse engineer it. Um, and yet that wasn't what people. And so, I mean, I guess like my question to you is like, why was there such reluctance? Like, why did people with with uh the understanding that this one or two problems that the perceptron had and that, you know, future um, 
programmer, I guess their ma machines had. Why did why were people so kind of closed minded that we wouldn't ever be able to solve this problem? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that even the people who worked on this didn't realize how much computing power you would need. Right. In 1980, when it starts to, you know, starts to work um, in labs uh, like Jeff's um, in these simple ways, um, you know, and on into the mid 80s, um, it's not working in a really practical way that you can push out into the real world. And even they thought, well, maybe we need 100 times more computing power. And then you get that um, and it's still not there. It just doesn't quite work. What they needed was a million times more processing power. And so it's hard to see that into the future. But also what's interesting to me about how this plays out and in the book is that it's about academics, right? Academics stake their careers on certain ideas, and they're going to defend that turf. Um, and that's what you have. You kind of have the, these tribes that believe in certain ideas, and, and they're going to defend their way of doing it. Um, even as the neural network started to work in some areas, like speech recognition was actually first before image recognition, you know, the people who worked in another area right? The people who worked in image re recognition still didn't think it was going to work, right? You have to be willing to say that what I've worked on for a whole career, you know, is now obsolete. And, you know, that's the way academics are, is there's, there's, there's a lot of push back and forth. There's a lot of defending of, of your turf. Um, and there's, and there's some healthy skepticism. You need that. It's part of the process, but it is funny how it can hold down ideas for a long time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Picture this, it's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.
Well, I think that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about your book, because it's a it's a book about one of the most quickly changing technologies, the things that, you know, you almost blink and you miss like the next major leap. And yet it talks about how this was 60 years in the making and that essentially it was driven by a small group of people who just kept working at it, even though they weren't getting the success that they needed which seems very contrary to what a lot of people see as the sort of culture of computer science. Although I think that's how it was, you know, at least maybe, you know, in in between 1950 and 2000. But since 2000, or since, I guess, you know, it seems like it's been a lot faster in terms of the pacing. So can you talk a little bit about sort of whether that academic model now is is has shifted and you know what's what's happened as a lot of tech tech companies like Google for example have recruited people that traditionally would have gone in the academic route but now are working for these companies and how that might shift the next generation of people who 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 work in this space that's a another really interesting thread here in that as we've talked about, the people who nurtured this idea over the decades were academics. The idea starts to work, and then these academics move into industry because that's where that's where the money is, uh, and that's where the need is. And what you find, and, and again, this is driven by some personal decisions, um, most notably by Jeff Hinton. He comes into Google right after selling his services to them, and he wants to retain his professorship at the University of Toronto. And he wants, like a lot of his colleagues who moved into places like Facebook and other companies, he wants to continue to publish. These academics come into industry and suddenly industry changes the way it behaves. And it's not necessarily holding on uh, to its latest advances, you know, jealously guarding secrets. These giant companies are publishing their latest results uh, for all to see. And that's one of the reasons the technology has continued to improve at this pace that you talk about. I think there are two reasons. One is that this is about learning, right? We've talked about this. The way that, that, that computer science worked for so many decades is you, you brought a bunch of engineers into the room. And if you wanted to build a system that could recognize a cat, those engineers had to define rule by rule, line of code by line of code, what a cat looked like. You're never going to get there that way. Now you have these systems that can learn. That means the technology is going to improve at a greater pace. And then once it improves and you have a new result, these companies publish it and then everyone else can duplicate it and then build on it. And that those are the two reasons that we've seen this enormous acceleration in so many different fields over the past decade. And you're also touching on what is probably the most important controversial aspect of this work that we really need to address, which is the fact that um, a small group of people who are often white and male uh, have an outsized influence on how, you know, these kinds of programs are built. And these programs rely very much on how they are trained in terms of how they do their jobs. And, you know, I've, I've heard it say, like, if you have this other model where you're coding every single line and you're essentially telling the program what to do every step of the way, you can look at all those lines of code and you can see like where the bias is or where the problematic decision is. But in the case of what we're talking about here in this different type of um, learning, of machine learning, you're essentially 
blind to how the machine is learning because what you're doing is taking a bunch of training data, having it, it decide itself what the features of the cat are. And you don't know what those features are. So it could be that they're that they would be something that we would agree with, you know, has whiskers, you know, is really cute, whatever. Um, or it could be something kind of arbitrary. And people have seen this where it's like, you know, the 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 difference between a wolf and a dog is whether there is snow in the background, right? Because wolves are more likely to be in snow. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how I mean, especially like maybe how Jeff Hinton feels or, or as you've had access to these and to these particular individuals. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so great about your book. It seems like you've had unprecedented access um, to these. You know, you call them genius makers. I will say like they're like kingmakers. You know, there are people who are really, you know, driving this field and have are going to have a huge influence on what our future looks like, how they feel about the responsibility that is on their shoulders to make sure that the programs that they are creating are not marginalizing particular groups of people. Yeah, what what's interesting to me, and this wasn't something that I necessarily saw when I first um, pitched the book to publishers and actually, um, you know, secured a publisher. I didn't I didn't expect how interesting the second half of my story would be because what it really became about was idealistic people like Jeff Hinton, and he is very idealistic. Um, in so many areas, there's real concern from him about how his technology should be used. But once you're inside a company like Google or Facebook uh, or Amazon, these very large public companies driven by the profit motive, um, sometimes those ideals get compromised. And you see this time and again where other idealistic academics uh, are caught up in these giant machines, really, where the forces at work surprise even them and the way their technology is being used surprises even them. You know, the bias issue is is just one of the issues, but that is that is an extremely uh, important issue, right? And you've described it well. You know, part of it is that the amount of data that are now going into these models is so large that we as humans could never wrap our heads around all that data, right? You can never see all the ways the machine is, is learning. And there's this tremendous moment in the book where particular researchers, mostly women and people of color, notice this problem, right? In real time, as they're working on systems uh, that will soon be deployed or that have already been deployed, and they notice that it is biased against women and people of color, for instance, in ways that its designers just didn't see, um, perhaps because they're white men, right? We, we all have our particular view of the world. And in this case, when you're choosing data, your worldview is going to affect the data you, you choose, right? The other thing I say is that we as humans are flawed and these systems are learning our flaws. Um, they are, it's learning in a lot of ways from the internet, right? The, the big, you talk about natural language at the beginning of this call. That's, that's the big area now. It's learning from data taken from the internet. If, if you've lived through the past four years, you know, the internet and it's data, you know, exhibit, exhibits human flaws, right? And you know that there's toxic language, uh, on the internet, you know, that there's bias, uh, in, in so many different forms on the internet. 
And I just want to point out that for people who find this really frightening and it, and there are consequences that we can control and therefore I feel like we have a responsibility to address them. But there's an analog, which is that we don't find it frightening when we teach our children to behave the way that we do, to speak our language, to you know use us as models for behavior. And it's not that different in terms of what we're doing. I don't know how my children learn to recognize faces. I just provided them with a lot of faces <laughs> and with some reinforcement for looking at those faces and they eventually learned it. And I tried to be mindful of issues surrounding diversity. Um, and you know I, I, I continue to read about it and I continue to learn, but I also, wouldn't fault my parenting, you know, to the point that I think sometimes we find fault in 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 these kinds of training algorithms um, for decisions that I made that, you know, weren't weren't conscious. And that might not be right and good. And I think we need to address some of those things and we need to be better about being explicitly anti-racist. But for generations, that was the case. And yet here, when we see it now in computers, I just wonder if if um, if there's a way of thinking about what's happening in machine learning that that it has a parallel in sort of, sort of the the little machines that we are teaching in our own homes, <laughs> you know, children. I think it's a great analogy because you know I'm a I'm a parent myself, and I think the lesson to be learned is you do want to be mindful, and you do want to think about the decisions you make and what you're teaching your children. And there are certainly times where I have seen my own mistakes and, and and have tried to correct them. I'm sure there are mistakes I have made that I have not seen. And the trick is to think about it. And I think that the, the one difference with the larger situation in terms of these tech companies and the issues we, we've been talking about is that sometimes they're not thinking about it for various reasons, right? There is, let's not underestimate some of the forces of Silicon Valley where it really is about getting the technology out there for various reasons to advance your career, to bring in money. We also, as, as humans can relate to that, right? We all want to keep our jobs and we need money to live and we can understand those forces. All those forces are amplified if we're talking about companies and the internet, right? Um, so I think it's it's really about whether you're an individual uh, or you're a giant company. And that's it's always harder when it's this collective, but you have to think about these issues and you have and you have to in very calm um, and very particular ways uh, Try to try to find those flaws uh, and try to deal with them. And you know, the the other side of it too, of course, is that if I'm a bad parent, and um, I you know I, I think I would have to be a pretty like pretty bad parent to decide to pull the plug on it to basically give up my children because I don't feel that I can you know be there for them. But then I would only have screwed up one or two human beings, <laughs> as opposed to you know people who are working on some of these programs that will affect the lives of a billion human beings. And so maybe we, you know, maybe the stakes there are so much higher that it is not acceptable to even have any unconscious mistakes that happen um, in the way that it might be if you make a parenting mistake. You might be right. But one thing's for sure, Google's not pulling the plug on Google, right? Facebook's not pulling the plug on Facebook, right? They're, they are out there. And, um, and that's why I think that these issues are so important is in that um, 
there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. And even if one company were to just stop, it's not like the other companies are going to stop. It's not like companies and governments across the globe are going to stop, right? We, one thing I want to make, make very clear is that this is a global revolution. Um, and you see that at the, in the first um, moment of my book that China is there. Some people think that China followed in this area. They were there at that auction for Jeff. And it's just one example of the entire world moving in this direction. And if one company decides to stop, um, that doesn't mean everybody else is. So I want to remind our listeners that Cade Metz's book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World, um, is now available at booksellers everywhere. So here's a question that I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times and that is very difficult to answer. Um, It seems to me as if things have sped up, at least in terms of how quickly things are improving in ways that we normal human beings can actually see. So the example I gave is the closed captioning um, capacity on Zoom, where, you know, recently I was on a call and it it literally made zero mistakes in like the 50 minutes that, that, that I was talking, which as somebody who has, you know, anybody who's watched closed captioning on television at airports knows that that, you know, that those kinds of AI make mistakes all the time. So it seems to me like, OK, we're almost there. But then, of course, there's this fear by some people in tech, like Elon Musk as a famous example, that the biggest threat to humanity is AGI or, you know, essentially a generalized intelligence like the, you know, the robot overlords, although I don't think that that's exactly what he means. And so I wonder if you could just give us an overview of your view uh, and maybe the view of people who are like Jeff Hinton, who had an idea, worked for decades about it, knew they were right are now right. And what they think in terms of what is the next looming either threat or major change that we're going to witness, say, in the more immediate future, five years from now, and then maybe in the more far future, 20 years from now, about how humanity will be changed with these neural networks and AI. Yeah, I do get asked that a lot, but I really, I really enjoy answering this question because you know what I what I like to do, and I think this is important for any story I write in the Times or certainly with this book, is I want to give people a clear picture of what has happened versus what might happen in the future. And what we've been discussing is AI, as people like to call it, working in very particular areas, uh, whether it's Siri recognizing the commands you speak into your iPhone or Facebook recognizing faces in your photos, um, or applying that sort of image recognition to self-driving cars and other robotics, right? That's how a self-driving car recognizes pedestrians on the side of the road or street signs. You talked about the closed captioning. And there, there are other areas that we could point to where this is working in a very real way. That, in your mind, as a, you know, as you know, a person living in 2021, that should be separate from this idea of a machine that can do anything that the human brain can do and that can somehow spin outside of our control, right? There are people um, at some very well-funded and very important AI labs who say their stated mission is to build that, right? To build what they call artificial general intelligence, that machine that can do anything, that your brain can do, but they don't quite know how to get there, right? 
Uh, they're driven by this belief that they will, and that's their ultimate goal. Um, but that's not something that's necessarily around the corner. We don't even have self-driving cars on the road. Uh, and I, I think that that's another really easy way to understand the limitations here. That self-driving car can recognize what's going on around it in many ways, in some ways better than a human. Where it's still struggling is dealing with all the uncertainty and the chaos in the world that it hasn't seen before, that isn't in its training data, for instance. Um, that's where that car kind of breaks down. And you have these moments that you and I can deal with almost as second nature, that sort of surprising thing that happens. And maybe we haven't seen it before and we can respond. Machines are not good at that. They're not good at reasoning. And um, we're still struggling to even know how we're going to get there. Um, so I, I put a lot of that, that sort of fear that Elon Musk talks about in a very different bucket. And you see that in the book, right? The, the chapter that focuses on that is called Religion. It's about... It's about a belief in something that will happen in the future. I thought it was really interesting. And then I, I thought also, in some ways, Jeff Hinton had a religion, which was that this was going to work, right? He absolutely did. And you make a good point, right? And, and you could use this to understand Silicon Valley writ large, right? That belief is important. Let me tell you, it was important to Jeff Hinton. And you see that. Um, you talked about his back problem. It wasn't just that the guy... Um, couldn't, you know, didn't sit down and couldn't drive and couldn't fly. It didn't stop him, right? He, his belief was so strong, he was going to travel across the country in a, in a, you know, on a train and lay down in the backseat of a taxi to make all this happen, right? That's belief and that's drive. And you have to have those things. If you're going to build something new, whether it's, you know, Facebook or certainly AGI, you better believe in it. But, you know, there's there's belief in, in Facebook and that you can build a social network. And then there's belief in in this thing that may be decades or centuries away. Right. There's there's a difference there. And, you know, it's hard to piece that apart sometimes, um, especially when someone is telling you with conviction they're going to build AGI. But you have to step back and say, well, wait, wait, wait. Um, you know, is that really around the corner? Like I can understand a new social network, a new app being doable in the next couple of years, but you're talking about, um, you're talking about something serious and you're a neuroscientist, right? We don't know how the brain works. If we don't know how the brain works, how are we going to duplicate it, right? That's another way of understanding this. We don't know how the brain works, but we know how to manipulate behavior. And I think that that's, you know, the other side of it. Okay. One, one last question and then I will let you go. So a lot of people, I think, who make a living as audio transcribers are threatened uh, by these new you know, machine learning algorithms that can do a very good job. There are also um, AIs that are designed to write. So do you worry about being replaced by you know, one of these kinds of tools? I, I honestly don't at the moment. There's this new system uh, called GPT-3. It's got one of these great, like, very computer science-y names, GPT-3. It's out of uh, OpenAI, which is this important AI lab in San Francisco, co-founded by Elon Musk. It's an amazing system. You know, not many people uh, have gotten their hands on it. I've, uh, I've used it. And this system, in addition to doing so many other things, it can generate its own language. It can generate tweets. It can generate blog posts. 
entire news articles. As I wrote a story about this for the Times this past year, my editor said, well, ask it to give you a speech in the voice of Donald Trump. And let me tell you, it gave this unbelievable speech in the voice of Donald Trump. It was just pitch perfect and the punctuation is perfect. And you know, it, sometimes it just has your jaw on the floor. But if you use it, what you also realize is that it takes a while to get what you want out of it. You have to kind of, you know, you have to kind of tweak the system and you have to kind of roll the dice um, and then roll them a little differently. And then you get what you want and, you know, you, you spin the wheel 10 times and five times that speech is perfect and five times it's just not, right? There's this gap. And GPT-3 is just a giant neural network. It learns from all this stuff on the internet, uh, digital books, Wikipedia articles, all sorts of other content. That's how it improves. So people, just scientists at uh, OpenAI and other places, they're just throwing more data at it. More, the more data they throw at it, the better it gets. And that gap shrinks. But we're not quite sure how much it's going to shrink and whether or not you can, you can get to the point where it's 10 out of 10. When, when it's 10 out of 10, you know, we're all in trouble because then machines can produce disinformation you know, at a nearly infinite scale. And that's scary. Um, so it's not just about my job. It's about, um, you know, bigger changes in the world if, if that happens. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. And I think that's something that, that people miss. It's going to be hard to get there. Well, thank you so much for your time. I hope that future is a long way away as a podcaster, because I'm sure that'll be the next, <laughs> the next job to go. So Cade Metz, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Great to be here. Great conversation. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. Join us for the rest of the series as we cover other topics in artificial intelligence. Next time, we're going to talk to Jeff Hawkins about how our brains construct mental models of the world and what that means when we're trying to build smart machines. After that, we're going to talk to Jamie Marisotis about the kind of work that we might do when artificial intelligence has essentially taken over most of our industries and how it is that we need to educate the future workforce. And finally, we'll talk to Gary Bengier about his science fiction account of what might happen 100 years from now called Unfettered Journey. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Charles Blyle, and Dale Lemaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.